Welcome to Obviously Bible again. I'm glad you're here. My name is Josh, and I'm one of the pastors. And this morning we start a new series called Heroic. And uh, we're going to be looking at uh, some passages in the Old Testament of what I believe really demonstrates heroic faith. Before we do, though, um, I just want to remind you about uh, the Vertical Church Band concert coming up March 8th. Uh, Fred had mentioned it, but we have, I think, seven tickets left, something like that. There's about 30 of you who are signed up to go, so we'd love for you to go that night. And if you want to, just mark on your Connect card, call the office, um, and, uh, and that'll be great. Also, to keep on your calendar, March 12th is our next prayer gathering. We had a great time of prayer this last Sunday night, um, a whole bunch of us, and there's even copies of, of our prayer list that we used at the Connect desk, and you can use it. Basically, what we did is, I don't know, there were 50-some of us, and we walked around the church and prayed for different areas of our church and the ministries that happen in those spaces. So whether you realize it or not, there was somebody on Sunday night last week praying for you. Because we came in this room, we walked some of the pews, some did, and they prayed specifically for the people who would be sitting exactly where you're sitting, that the Holy Spirit would work in your life today and this year. So maybe you'd join us uh, on March 12th to pray again. And um, if, if not, if you want to just come throughout the week and pray for our church, I'd encourage you to do that. That's an easy tool for you to just be able to walk around this church and pray for the different ministries happening here at Wawasee Bible. Well, as I said, we start a new series today called Heroic, and Will Rogers, the humorist, he once said this. He said, we can't all be heroes because somebody has to sit on the curb and clap as they go by. In response to that line, Warren Wiersbe wrote this. He said, I think we can all be heroes, at least from God's point of view, and that's far more important than the applause of the crowd on the curb. Would you agree with that? That God's applause are so much more important than of people. And a lot of times when uh, we think of heroes, and I even say heroic faith, maybe you're thinking, I don't have heroic faith. I couldn't be a hero. You know who heroes are? Heroes are the famous people. They're uh, the people who are listed in Scripture. They're uh, some of the maybe, maybe athletes or stars or famous pastors or missionaries or, um, or guys who can speak in front of you. know, that's not me. Certainly not me. Well, I want to challenge your thinking on that over the next few weeks. And, and really, I want you to think about what a true hero is. In the Old Testament, it was a lot of times that description that you just heard. Uh, when the term hero is used, which is only a few times, it refers to men of military might. But do you know who one of the people called a hero was in the Old Testament? Gideon. And do you know how old he was when God called him a mighty man of valor, or depending on your translation, a hero? Um, somewhere uh, around these guys' age. Middle school. Early teens. And he was called a hero by who? By God. Heroic faith has less to do about with what you accomplish than it does with what God accomplishes in and through you. Uh, the, the idea of a hero has developed over time in classical literature. It's, it's often the main character in a story who battles adversity. And when they face great danger, they overcome it with bravery and with courage and and they win in the end, right? That's the, that's the hero. Um, they often show great selflessness by putting their personal concerns aside. They even sacrifice their personal desires for a greater good. You know, Jesus said something very similar to that, didn't he? He, he said in Matthew chapter 6, 
He said, not to be, not to worry or be anxious about tomorrow, but to trust him. And then he goes on and he says, but instead seek first, not your own desires is what he's implying, or worry about your own self, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And then all of these things will be added unto you. A hero puts aside their personal concerns, personal agendas. Heroic faith does all of that for the sake of Jesus' kingdom. And Jesus and his kingdom are first. And he calls us not only to do it individually, but as a group of people, as a church, as a family. And so that's where we're headed today. That's where we're headed over the next few weeks. And um, we're going to look at some of the aspects of being an everyday hero. And to do this, we're going to go through uh, two of the least, least preached books in the Bible. Ezra and Haggai. You're like, I've, I've heard of those guys, but I don't, I don't know if I know much about them. Well, we're, you're going to learn about them over the next six weeks. And we're, because we're doing it in six weeks, we're not going to maybe dive as deep as we normally would. We're going to stay at a pretty high level in the story. But that's where we're heading. So if you want to, in your, in your quiet times this week, read. Start reading through Ezra and, and Nehemiah and Haggai and Zechariah, uh, some of those books. And, and you'll be right up to speed with where we're heading. But before we go any further, let's pray, okay? Um, Father, thank you for Jesus, and thanks again for your grace to us through him. Lord, I pray that uh, you would speak to and through me, even as I teach your word. Um, Holy Spirit, might uh, you work in our hearts, even as we prayed, might you come and change us and make us more like Jesus. Might you give us uh, faith that, by definition, puts the kingdom first and is truly heroic. Um, Lord, as we look at, at the people of Israel in Ezra and your people, And in Haggai, might it inspire us as a congregation and as individuals to live heroically for you and for your kingdom. Pray against the enemy, his servants, their works and effects. He would uh, distract us, would uh, take your word and twist it. But instead, Holy Spirit, would you work today and change us, change me? Father, we love you. We pray all this through Jesus. Amen. Well, before we get going, um, I need to give you a little background on the story And even before that, I want to talk to you about an overriding theme that we're going to talk about today when it relates to heroic faith. And that's this doctrine of God's providence. Have you ever heard of that? You ever heard of the doctrine of God's providence? Um, God's providence is his continual involvement with all created things and his cooperation with everything that happens. He's involved in everything that takes place in your life, in everything that takes place in our church, in everything that takes place in the world. God is involved and cooperating with what's happening. In fact, uh, whether you realize it or not, he's even cooperating to a certain extent with the evil that's happening. And as Paul tells us in Romans 8.26, he's going to work all of that for good in the lives of those who are called according to his purpose to be predestined into the image of Jesus Christ. So even the evil, God can take it and he doesn't call it good. It's still evil, but he can work it for good in our lives and in this world. Amen. That's his providence, his cooperation with what's happening in the world. 
His continual involvement, I wrote this, it includes his continuing and often unseen activity of guiding and sustaining his universe, providing for the needs of every creature, preparing for the completion of his eternal purposes. The doctrine of providence affirms God's absolute lordship over his creation, and it confirms the dependence of all creation on the creator. And it's the denial of the idea that the universe is governed by chance or by fate. That's God's providence. Now, to you, you might think, I've heard of something else that that reminds me of that. Uh, uh, Sovereignty. That sounds like God's sovereignty, isn't it? Aren't they the same thing? And really, they're very similar. Providence is part of God's sovereignty. And maybe you can think of, to separate them, you might think of them like this, that sovereignty is a characteristic of God. It's not an action. It's just, it's who he is. It's his position, ruling and reigning, sovereign over everything. He's in charge. He's the authority, right? Providence is the action whereby God steps down in his sovereignty and is in charge and in control of all things. You see the difference? I mean, providence puts some flesh on it and it puts some, some bones to it to where I, I see him working. I, I see God's providence in my life. I see the way he's changing people. We heard stories from Steve from Destiny Rescue. We see what God is doing around the world through that ministry. We see what he's doing in our church. That's providence. And the first step in being heroic, having a heroic faith, is to recognize God's providence. I listed some synonyms in the sermon lead were up there, and they're on your, on your insert of, of heroic. It's unwavering, undaunted, all of that by the fact that God is in control of all things, that he exercises his providence at all times. So keep that in mind as we go through the text this morning. Keep that idea that God is in control and he's working all things toward his end throughout history and in your life. Maybe you would even consider what are some ways that you've seen God's providence in your life as we study the text this morning. Maybe you'd think, what what are ways you've seen God's providence in our church over the years as we work through the text this morning. Because it's there, and if you don't see it, you're just not looking. You're just not looking. He's in control. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to look at Ezra, uh, the first three chapters today of Ezra. Um, And Ezra begins in the year, tell me if you remember this year, it was a good year, 538 B.C. Do you remember that one? Like, yeah, that was a good year. Nothing about it, do you? You don't know. Well, now you know the book of Ezra starts in about 539, 538 BC. But to set up the story, can I give you some background? Because maybe, uh, maybe you've, you've read your Bible and, and you know the story of the Bible, but uh, maybe all the details, kind of the plot line, you're, um, you're wondering what's happening here. Because as we get to the text, all of God's people are in exile. They're not in Israel, but they're in Babylon, in modern-day Iraq. And if you don't know how they got there or why they're there, it makes no sense why they're coming back. Is that fair? If you're with me, say, Go. Okay, good. A few of you are awake. A few of you woke up. Here we go. You ready? So somewhere, yeah, go. Here again. ADD crowd today. Here we go. Now, how did they get there? Let me tell you. Somewhere around 2000 BC, God made a covenant with this guy you know as Abraham. And maybe you don't know a lot about him. You just know the song, you know, Abraham had many sons, you know, all that, that thing. Well, he did. And you are one of them spiritually. But he makes a promise to Abraham in around 2000, approximately, B.C. 
And this promise has three parts to it. He promises Abraham that he's going to make his name great. He's going to give him a good reputation. He promises that he's going to make uh, his nation great. He's going to give him all kinds of descendants, both physically and then eventually spiritually. Like you and I, if you've trusted Jesus, you're a descendant of Abraham. He's your spiritual grandpa. And then uh, also he's going to be promised him a great land, a great land, a great name, a great nation, and a great land. And this land is modern-day Israel, and it's actually much bigger than the borders of modern-day Israel. Well, as God repeats this promise to Abraham over and over through Genesis, in chapter 15, he says, Now, I'm going to fulfill all these things, but before I fulfill this one of the land, uh, all of the people are going to be taken away for 400 years into a foreign land. And that's going to be Egypt. The God's people end up in Egypt, right? At around four, and, and you fast forward to 1446, approximately BC, and they're in Egypt. They got there peacefully, but now they've become slaves of Pharaoh. And, and they're crying out to God, see us, recognize us, save us from this, this oppression. And it's the defining act of salvation in the Old Testament when God raises up this man by the name of Moses. And Moses goes, and he walks in, he goes before Pharaoh, says, let my people go. And after the ten plagues, and he parts the Red Sea, and they come out, and they're into the wilderness. And their first pit stop is at a place called Mount Sinai. And on Mount Sinai, Moses is going to go up the mountain, and he's going to meet with God. And Moses is actually going to see God and see his glory. You know that song, open up the heavens, show us, show us your glory? That's, that's Moses' words. And, and Moses goes up and he comes back down with, uh, God gives him a bunch of rules for how they're supposed to live before they get to the land that God had promised to Abraham. And uh, he gives them even a top 10 list that he actually writes down on stone tablets. You might know them as the 10 commandments. So they get the 10 commandments. Moses comes down and I'm going to fast forward a little further. Uh, they, they, the people disobey. See, because the, the, the essence of the Ten Commandments, I can sum it up for you in two lines. Are you ready for them? Here's the first one. Choose to obey, choose blessing. Choose to sin, choose to suffer. If you choose to obey all of these commands, God says, you're choosing blessing. But if you choose to sin, I'm sorry, you're choosing to suffer. Because I love you and I'm going to discipline you until you repent. That's what God does. So... Uh, Eventually, the people choose to sin and they choose to suffer. They don't take the land that God had provided for them. And so God says, you're all going to die in the wilderness. Now, stick with me. We're getting to the text of Ezra, okay? You're going to die in the wilderness. And that whole generation dies. And then a guy by the name of Joshua leads them into Israel. And the people of Israel, for Joshua's generation, we read that for the most part, God's people chose blessing. They chose to obey. Joshua 24, 31 says, The people of Israel served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and of the elders who outlived him, those who had personally experienced all that the Lord had done for Israel. But there's a problem. That generation, it went well for them. But the next generation, check out what it says in Judges chapter 2. After that generation died, another generation grew up who did not acknowledge the Lord or remember the mighty things that he had done for Israel. The Israelites did evil in the Lord's sight, and they served the images of Baal. They chose to sin. So what can they expect to come their way? Suffering. God's people turned from him, and they chose to sin, and they would suffer. And for 400 years, there was this cycle of they would turn from God, uh, they, would, they would face an oppressor, God would uh, hear their cries for help, and he would send a, a judge to rescue them. And it just kept going and going and going until in the end, um, 
Judges ends by saying this, that in those days Israel had no king about 400 years later, and all the people did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. Now Israel actually had a king, the text tells us. It was God, but they rejected him. They're like, we don't, we don't want this. We want a God like, we want a, excuse me, we want a king like all the other kings. All these guys who have come in and conquered us, not recognizing it was their own fault they got conquered because of their sin. We want a king like all of these other kings. And God says, okay, okay. And he, he gives them a king by the name of Saul. And Saul becomes king of Israel's first human king in 1051 BC. And he's like the, the spitting image of a Disney prince. He's a head taller than everybody else. He's, he's more handsome than anyone in Israel. And he does good for a little while, but then he rejects the Lord. And so God replaces him 40 years later with a man after his own heart by the name of David, King David. And David reigns and does well for the most part, but he had wandering eyes and uh, sins with Bathsheba. And uh, eventually we see, okay, David can't fully rescue us from our sin either. So now what? And God disciplines him, but then restores him and in his incredible grace, uh, gives him a new son through Bathsheba, who's going to be the next king on the throne. And his name is Solomon. Now Solomon comes to power in 971 BC. We're getting closer to that year in Ezra, right? We're getting closer. So hang with me. And Solomon is unmatched in his wisdom. God asks him, uh, give me, I'll give you anything you wish. And Solomon asks for, I, I want, I want wisdom. And he gives him incredible wisdom. No one other than Jesus was wiser than Solomon. Under his rule, there's unbelievable peace. Israel's borders are larger than at any time in their history, including today. He builds a gorgeous temple. Gorgeous temple for the Lord. It had been a vision in David's heart, but Solomon is the one who got to build it. And when he builds it, he like he literally, it's like he just, oh, let's dip this in gold and cover this with gold. And, and everything is just covered in gold. It's gorgeous. Nothing like it that's ever been seen in Israel. And in 2014 dollars, just to give you an idea of the wealth of Solomon and the wealth of the temple, in raw materials alone, to build the temple exactly like Solomon built it today, do you know what it would cost? $178,860,000,000. That's a lot. It makes our project look pretty small, doesn't it? That's a, that's a lot for the temple to worship. That didn't include the treasuries where there was still millions more. But after building it, God warned Solomon similarly to the way that he had warned Moses. And he said, Solomon, so long as all of Israel uh, obeys me, and especially you, that you obey me, you're choosing blessing and things are going to go great for you. Trust me, I'm in, I'm in control. That's my providence. Things are going to go great um, but if you choose to sin, this gorgeous temple that you just built, and it's gorgeous, and all the wealth you spent on it, um, it's going to be left in a pile of ruins. And people will walk by this place, and they will see this temple, and they will use Israel's name as a swear word, as a byword, wondering what you did that your God would allow that to happen to you. Well, Sadly, that's exactly what ends up happening because Solomon also had wandering eyes and a wandering heart. And God had warned him. He said, don't marry foreign women because they have foreign gods. It wasn't because of a racial thing. It was simply uh, who they believed in. And he said, because they will draw your heart to their gods. 
And Solomon had 700 wives, 300 concubines, and they drew his heart away from the Lord. He chose to sin. He could expect to suffer. And uh, so after Solomon's death, God is still incredibly gracious to Solomon and waits until after his death. He dies in 931 B.C., and about 10 years later, the kingdom gets divided in 922. And God's kingdom, uh, now the 10 northern tribes become Israel. The two southern tribes become Judah. And in the 10 northern tribes, they had all wicked kings. Every one of their kings, 19 of them were wicked They always chose to sin, and they were always choosing to suffer. And so uh, one of the things God had warned about uh, with Solomon is he said, if this happens, if you sin, if you're in my face all the time, I'm going to remove, I'm not only going to destroy the temple, but I'm going to remove you from this land. And so that's what he does. All of Israel, these 10 northern tribes, now known as Israel, gets taken into exile. They're conquered by the Assyrians. And the means of warfare was brutal. They would besiege a city. They'd surround it, starve people out, cook bread outside the city walls to lure them out because they were so hungry. And then they would conquer them and take them into exile to remove them from the land, just like God had said in 722. Well, what about the southern two tribes? Well, the southern two uh, also had 19 kings and a queen, but eight of them were actually uh, righteous, somewhat righteous. And they choose to obey, so they chose blessing. And so during their times of blessing, God's anger was delayed and his judgment was delayed. But eventually, um, in 586 B.C., actually starting in 605 B.C., the Babylonians, who in the meantime conquered the Assyrians, come in and sack Judah. And all of God's people get taken out of the land, and now all of them are under the control of the Babylonians. There were some who were left, but not many. And they're in Babylon, and they're in captivity. Now, what's curious is right before they get taken into captivity, Jeremiah, he he was prophesying for years, saying, you need to repent, you need to repent, you need to repent. You remember what God said? He's going to take you out of the land. He's going to just, it's going to be bad. You've got to repent, man. Turn back to him. And they didn't. In fact, they ridiculed him. And um, then it happened. But Jeremiah said, uh, but here's the good news is that after 70 years, you're going to be brought back. God's going to relent. He's going to discipline you for 70 years, but then he's going to bring you back to this land. The temple will be rebuilt, and things will be good again, so long as you obey, right? So 605 is when it starts. We fast forward. Uh, They've been in captivity now. When we get to 539, 538 B.C., where Ezra starts, they've been in captivity for almost 70 years. We're right on the edge of this promise of Jeremiah being fulfilled for all the people to go back. Are you with me? They're just about to get to go back, and that's where we pick up Ezra. So if you've got your Bible, turn to Ezra chapter 1. Ezra chapter 1 starts this way. He writes, uh, In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord came, came by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. Let's just start with that first phrase. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia. In 539, Persia, the Iranians, come over and they conquer the Babylonians. So now uh, the, the Persians are in control of God's people in exile. And this new king who's now in control, Cyrus, within that first year of his reign over the people of Israel in Babylon, he makes a decree. What's he going to say? 
What's the king going to say? I wonder, remember God made this promise, 70 years they're going to go back. Is his providence really true? Is he going to work all things to, to fulfill his promises? Let's see. Well, he says that in the first year, the king of Cyrus, the king of Persia, so that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. Ding, there it is. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom, and he also put it in writing. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia. That's a great line to notice. It's a great line to remember that God is the one in control of all leaders and of all rulers, of everything. That's his providence, his sovereignty, and his providence is how he he cooperates with that. So never get dismayed with who's in power. Never get dismayed with who the president is or isn't now or in four years or in eight years. Uh, Pray for them because in God's providence, he might stir their heart to orchestrate things toward his end. He can use any man, any woman, no matter how wicked, to serve his purposes. And that's exactly what he's going to do here with Cyrus. Uh, Look, at he, he stirred his heart so that he made a proclamation throughout all of his kingdom. The Persian Empire was huge. Throughout all his kingdom, and he also even put it in writing. God's about to keep his promise, isn't he? We're seeing his providence at work. And heroic faith sees God's providence. And one of the first things in seeing God's providence is it recognizes that God keeps his promises. God keeps all of his promises. Do you believe that? What are some of his promises to you? Well, by the blood, the shed blood and the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ. If you would repent and turn to him, you would be saved. By his grace. You don't need to face death with fear. You don't need to face life with fear. That's his promise to you. Do you believe that? He keeps his promises. In the face of adversity, do you believe his promises? Look at verse 2. Thus says King Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given to me all the kingdoms of the earth. He had stirred his heart. Now Cyrus is recognizing that God in his sovereignty and in his providence has given him uh, every kingdom on the earth. And, And he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Cyrus recognizes it. Whomever is among you, of all his people, he says, so of all the people who are under his rule, any of you who are from Judah, um, may his God be with him. And let him go go back to Jerusalem, go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. Amazing. We're almost to 70 years when Jeremiah said it would be rebuilt, and now God is using this foreign king who's uh, the oppressor, the ruler of, of all the captivity, to do it. He's saying, go back and rebuild it. Now, but nobody saw that coming. If anything, they thought, man, is God ever going to show up? We're, the clock's ticking. It's been 67, 66, 68 years. Boy, I don't know if he's going to keep his promise. I don't know. And then Cyrus is the one who decrees it. It's his providence. He says, uh, And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold. 
with goods and with beasts, besides free will offerings for the house of God that's in Jerusalem. Cyrus goes a step further here. Think about it. These people have been, their, their homeland has been sacked, right? They've been taken into exile. Some of them, that's the only place they've known to live. Others have died there. Some have been there their entire lives. Maybe if they were a teenager when it was conquered and now 70 years later, what do you suppose they have available to them to go back when Cyrus says, go back and build, uh, build the temple? They're like, um, you guys kind of stole all our stuff. I don't have anything anymore to give towards that or to do that. How is this going to happen? I have no idea. And then Cyrus even decrees that the people who are living around them should give them silver and gold, uh, give freewill offerings, and send it back with them to build it. So not only, here's what we're going to see, not only does God keep his promises, but he provides for his work. He provides for his work. Do you believe that? Listen, if it's, if it's Jesus' church and if it's um, his kingdom, whose wealth is it as well? His. We talked about this for five weeks, generous life, right? It's all his. And if, if, if it's his work, he's going to provide for it to happen, isn't he? Do you believe it? It's true. He will. He provides for his work. Look what happens. Verse 5, then rose up the heads of the father's houses of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that's in Jerusalem. There's God working again. When he's working, what do we call it? It's his, what? It starts with a P, his providence. But look, he's stirring up his people too, not just Cyrus, but his people. He starts out the, the heads of the father's houses of Judah and Benjamin. He starts with the primary leaders and he stirs them up to go back and build. And then the priests and the Levites, not just the primary leaders, but, but all the leaders of the other ministries and all the other things that are happening in Judah. And he stirs them up to be a part of the mission. And then everyone whose spirit God had stirred up to go up. And then the whole bunch of other people that God stirred and moved to go. Do you notice the pattern? He starts with the leaders, the primary leaders, and then other leaders, and then all the people. The leaders, the other leaders, and all the people. You know, we're, we're in this 30 for 30 journey, right? Where we're going to come to April, and uh, we've got plans to, to renovate and to add on to our facility. And it's starting as a vision in the hearts of your leadership years ago. It's actually, it was part of a strategic plan from 2011. Did you know that? It's about 50 pages long. This was one of the things we wanted to tackle. If you want to read it, it's probably kind of boring to you, but you're welcome to it. And then over the last few years, that vision has developed. And uh, we shared it with you. And then we've gone to, to some of the other ministry leaders uh, about a month ago and sharing it with them. And uh, over the next few weeks, we're going to be going to them, and, and all of the leaders are going to commit what they're going to give over the next uh, five weeks. And then we're going to come to everybody in April. And we're going to say, here's the vision, here's where we're going, here's what all your leaders have given or planning to give over the next three years. Would or, invite you to join us. Would you like to join us and be part of the journey? And I share that with you again, just so that you're not caught unaware, that you can be praying about that now. But no, the pattern we're following is one that's found multiple times in the Bible, where the vision starts with the primary leaders, goes to the other leaders, and then to all the people. It happens often throughout Scripture. But let's get back to the text and see God working. Look at verse 6. And all who were about them aided them with vessels of silver. 
Wow, God started to provide for them, to provide for his work with gold, with goods, with beasts, with costly wares, besides all that was freely offered. Cyrus the king also brought out the vessels of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and placed in the house of his gods. So not only are they getting gold and silver and all kinds of resources to rebuild the temple, but they're getting all the stuff from that was in the temple back that Nebuchadnezzar had stolen when he sacked Jerusalem. Cyrus, king of Persia, brought these out in the charge of Mithridath, the treasurer, who counted them out to Sheshbazar. If you're looking for names for your kids, there you go, a couple of them. The prince of Judah, and this was the number of them, 30 basins of gold, 1,000 basins of silver, 29 censers, 39 bowls of gold, 410 bowls of silver, and 1,000 other vessels. All the vessels of gold and silver were 5,400 and these did Sheshbazar bring up when the exiles were brought from Babylon to Jerusalem. How amazing is that? God's keeping his promise, and he's providing for the work that's about to happen. Now, after this in the text here, we start to see a list of all the people that, that go up. And I'm not going to read all those names to you, but I want to read the first couple lines here of chapter 2. Now, now, these were the people of the province who came up out of the captivity, those of those exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried captive to Babylonia. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his own town. They came with Zerubbabel, Jeshua, Nehemiah, Sariah, Realiah, Mordecai, Bilshan, Mispar, Bigvi, Rehum, Baanah, the number of the men of Israel, and it, and it keeps going and lists all of them for the next 60 verses. But some of the key ones are here that you're going to hear about in the coming weeks. Zerubbabel is one. He's going to be the governor, the king of Judah. He's a descendant of King David. Jeshua, he's referred to as Joshua uh, in, uh, in Haggai. It's a, just Jeshua is the Aramaic of Joshua, same guy. He's going to be the high priest and, the, and, and oversee the construction of the temple. But look at verse 64. The whole assembly together that returned was 42,360. Besides their male and female servants, of whom there were 7,337, and they had 200 male and female singers. Interesting detail. But let's just round it up. We'll say there was 49,800 some. We'll just round it up. 50,000 people returned from exile. 50,000 people whose hearts God stirred to go and rebuild the temple. And 66, 67, 68 lists uh, their possessions. Verse 68, uh, some of the heads of families when they came to the house of the Lord that's in Jerusalem then made freewill offerings for the house of God to erect it on its site. There the leaders gave the first offerings to rebuild the house of the Lord. Verse 69, according to the, and look at this, according to their ability, they gave to the treasury of the work. 61,000 derricks of gold, 50,000 or 5,000 minas of silver, and 100 priest's garments. Derricks were gold coins uh, that King Darius instituted throughout Persia. But note that they gave according to their ability, not everybody giving the same amount, but giving what they could, right? Giving what they could. Equal gift, not equal gifts, but equal sacrifice. So now the priests, the Levites, some of the people, the singers, the gatekeepers, the temple servants, they all went back. They lived in their, basically their old towns and all the rest of Israel in their towns. So they've, we just got a quick summary from Ezra. They go back, they, they, they start giving offerings to rebuild the temple. They, they set up camp in their old towns. Construction starts. And um, 
The last thing I want you to see here in God's providence is not only that he keeps his promises, that he provides for his work, but then um, he rewards heroic faith with joy. And why do I say this? Well, put yourself in the spot of one of the Israelites in this day. Maybe, uh, maybe you're uh, one of the elders in Israel. You're in your 80s or 90s even, and you remember as a boy or as a girl, you remember what the temple was like, the beauty of it, how wonderful it was, the worship that happened there. And then you remember the horror of being conquered by a foreign land and an enemy, a, a violent man in Nebuchadnezzar. And you remember being taken into exile and you wonder, um, what's going to happen now? And for, for anywhere from 50 to 70 years now, you've been in exile and um, under the oppression of someone else working for a new person in a new land. And you wonder what's going to happen. And then they're conquered by the Persians. And you wonder again, now what is going to happen? Life's changing again. And then a decree comes, you can go back. What would you do? Your life's um, passed by in exile. You, you don't have a lot of possessions left. You don't uh, maybe even have a lot of trust in the Lord left because of the way things happened. And what's it going to be like to travel back? To take a couple months journey. Remember, they couldn't get in their car or go to the airport, hop on a plane. <laughs> It was walking and horseback and camelback. And, and you're, you're, you're traveling with all these people to go back. But to go back to what? You don't know. But then you remember, God made a promise. And the Holy Spirit stirs your heart in such a way that you go, I know that he keeps all of his promises. <laughs> and he's going to restore us to the land. He's going to restore the temple. He's going to keep his word and I know it's, it's crazy, humanly speaking, and it's foolish, and it makes no sense to go. I have no way to provide. The, I don't know what's going to happen. I, I may have to throw a blanket over my camel and sleep propped up next to it for the next few months before I can build a home. Um, but I'm going to go. I'm going to go. That's heroic faith. That's heroic faith. It, it faces adversity and in, the, in light of something that, humanly speaking, makes no sense, it follows the Lord. It obeys him. It trusts him. It steps out in faith and says, I, I, will, I will not be moved. I'll be undaunted because uh, there is no God. There is no rock like my rock. Amen? And that's what they do. And their heroic faith, loved ones, is going to be rewarded with joy. Look at Ezra chapter 3. When the seventh month came and the children of Israel were in the towns, the people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. So they've been there for seven months now. Then arose Jeshua, or Joshua, the, the son of Jehozadak, with his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and his kinsmen, and they built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it's written in the law of Moses, the man of God. 
And they, the first thing they build is the altar. They, they set the altar in its place for fear was on them because of the peoples of the land. I wonder if that was any of their fears going back. Who are the people there now? What are they going to do to us? How will they respond to us coming back? And they get there. And guess what? There's people who oppress them. We're going to see it over and over in the coming weeks. They oppress them in their work and opposition comes up. And listen, anything, anytime you try to do anything of substance for the Lord, I guarantee you, you're going to face opposition. The critics will come out of the woodwork. All kinds of crazy things will start happening in your life and your faith will be tested. And the question is, will you stand firm in the Lord Jesus Christ? They were facing opposition and they had a choice. They could freak out, which maybe inside they kind of were. <laughs> but look what they do. Instead of worrying, look at what the first thing they do. They worship. They set the altar in its place for fear was on them. That's why they set it in their place. Uh, because fear was on them because of all the people's. And they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord. Burnt offerings morning and evening. They kept the feast of booths just as it was written and offered daily burnt offerings by number according to the rule each day as each day required. And after that, regular burnt offerings. Then the offerings at the new moon and and all the feasts. In verse 6, from the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord. But the foundation of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid. The first thing they do, they set up the altar and in face of opposition, they worship. They don't worry, they praise the Lord. And they did it every day, starting on the first day of the seventh month. You know what? Uh, our, our only chance for this to work, our only chance is if God in his providence comes down and orchestrates events to make this happen. Amen? And that's what they do. They worship. When you face opposition, what do you do? Heroic faith presses on and it worships. How's the song go? Though Satan may buffet. You may wonder what that means. It means that, like to strike repeatedly, violently. Though Satan should buffet, though trials shall come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O oh my soul. Amen? Now look what happens. They, they gave money. So they, they worshiped and then they kept going. Verse 7, they gave money to the Masons. And the carpenters, they're like, we're not going to be dismayed. We're going to keep going in the face of opposition. We know the Lord is in this. And food and drink and oil to the Sidonians and the Tyrians to bring cedar trees from Lebanon to the sea to Joppa. They bring in all the things. Now in the second year, after the coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, in the second month, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, so Zerubbabel and Jeshua, the, the governor and the high priest, make a beginning together with the rest of their kinsmen, the priests, the Levites, and all who had come to Jerusalem from captivity. They appointed the Levites from 20 years old and upward to supervise the work of the house of the Lord. Uh, they, they, get, they, they get all the younger generation and say, you guys are going to do the work. <laughs> You're going to build it. We're going to supervise it, but we, we want you to serve. We want you to be a part of this. Now go do it. And when the builders laid the foundation of the Lord, of the temple of the Lord, verse 10, the priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets and the Levites, the son of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the directions of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord for he is good and his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the Lord, of the temple of the Lord was laid. The first exile started in 605. Literally, exactly 70 years later, the foundation is laid. In 586, uh, the temple is totally destroyed. Well, uh, 70 years after that is exactly when the temple is completed. 
God keeps his promises. And he provided for the work. And he rewards their heroic faith with joy because they participated with him in the work. Now, as we keep reading, there are some maybe who didn't have joy. And then we'll close. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, they had seen what Solomon built. They wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid. It wasn't as glorious as Solomon's temple. So God's still going to keep this promise eventually when Jesus returns. But it was so loud, all the shouting, that the people couldn't distinguish the joyful shout from the sound of people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. Loved ones, as we close, what is it the Lord's doing in your life? Where do you see him at work? Where do you see his providence? Where do you see him at work in our church? Where do you see his providence? Do you trust him to be faithful, to keep his promise to us? Do you trust him to provide for the work that he's doing? He will reward your faith with joy. That's one of his promises, and he keeps his promises. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thanks for Jesus, and thanks for your grace to us through him. Lord, um, we all face many challenges. And to look at the challenge that the Israelites faced coming back from captivity, uh, many of ours kind of pale in comparison to that. Yet, nonetheless, you care about us. You, uh, we're told to cast everyone of our cares upon you because you care for us. You know what's happening. You are in control sovereignly, but in your providence, you step in to help and to work in our lives. I pray that you would, Lord. Help us to remember your promises, to uh, remember your provision, and to step out in faith to trust you. I pray for those who hear my voice, Lord, today that they might uh, turn to you if they've never have in saving faith, believing your word, and turning to you in faith. That you might reward that with joy as they become followers of Jesus. Lord, we love you. We thank you for Jesus. We pray all of this through him. Amen.